right, everybody. Welcome to the Weekend Interview Show. I got G. Edward Griffin on the phone, and he's going to be giving a speech during the Weekend Interview Show later on. So decided I'd uh, come on in early and uh, get in my interview with G. Edward Griffin. Now, the reason he's in town is because uh, last night he gave a great speech about Freedom Force International to the Libertarian Party Distinguished Speaker Series. Uh, which went great. After giving away all my copies of Jekyll Island, I finally got a new one, and this time it's autographed, so I'll, I'll have to hang tight to this one. But anyway, I ought to let you know, in case you don't know who G. Edward Griffin is, he's been fighting against, or fighting for, I should say, freedom against the forces of collectivism and statism and globalism for decades, y'all, since the 60s. And he's the author of The Great Prison Break, The Open Gates of Troy, Moles in High Places, Nowhere to Run, A Grand Design, The Capitalist Conspiracy, The Fearful Master, World Without Cancer, and the topic of today's show, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. And um, I should mention that Mr. Griffin is right now hard at work on the Freedom Manifesto, uh, which uh, hopefully will be done shortly. I can't wait to read it myself. And uh, he's also the creator of Freedom Force International. So welcome back to the show, Mr. Griffin. Well, thanks, Scott. Nice to be here. Okay, now, I was just flipping through my new copy of The Creature from Jekyll Island last night, and I found this part, which I'm hoping to flip right to the page now, but it doesn't look like it's going to work. But uh, you talked in here about how, you know, the official college textbook reason for the creation of the Federal Reserve was because of all the panics in the... Uh, early 1900s, really the first decade of the 20th century, and that they created the Federal Reserve System in order to smooth out the boom and bust cycles, in order to prevent these uh, panics from happening. And then you go on to list all the panics since the Federal Reserve was created. And uh, I suppose uh, you call into question not just whether the Federal Reserve does a good job, but whether actually that's even the job it's supposed to be doing. Is that right? Well, yeah, I think that's a, it's a very important distinction to make, is that maybe the official version is not 100% accurate. Uh, as you just stated, that the, uh, the textbook answer to the question of what is the purpose of the Federal Reserve System is that it's supposed to uh, protect the public uh, against a chaotic uh, banking system and to smooth out the economy and uh, to benefit everyone. And that's, you know, why we... Uh, accepted the Federal Reserve Act in the first place, and it's pretty much how people think of the Federal Reserve System today. And um, if the purpose of the Fed is to uh, smooth out the economy and to, to protect our uh, our purchasing power, uh, if you then look at the history of uh, our economy since the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, uh, and look at all the disasters we've had and the continuing disaster. Inflation, for example, has eaten away about 97, 98% of the purchasing power of the dollar. Uh, to say nothing of all of the booms and busts and all the chaotic swings uh, in the economy since then, you have to say that the, if that's the purpose of the Federal Reserve, it, it gets a failing grade on its report card. It hasn't done very well. Um, but if you uh, realize that there might be another purpose for the Federal Reserve System, uh, then you might take another look at it. And m one of the points I was trying to make there in that part of the book is that, indeed, there are 
other purposes. In fact, the purpose that we've been told was not the main one at all. Um, when you go back to the meeting on Jekyll Island, which is where the Federal Reserve System was created, and you consider the uh, list of characters, the cast of characters that was at that meeting and the large banks which they represented, and you look at what their motives were at that time, and you don't even have to wonder because they gave speeches on it before banking associations, and uh, they gave interviews to newspaper reporters. Um, their biographers have told us a lot about what their concerns were in those days, and you can piece it together. You don't have to wonder. It's all there in the historical record. You, you realize that there were some very practical objectives of the Federal Reserve System which didn't have much to do with the public interest at all. Uh, for example, one of the prime, uh, the, the prime purposes of the Fed um, was to stop the uh, the outflow of money from New York, from the large uh, money center banks, as they call them in New York, to the outskirts of the country. You see, the country was then undergoing a lot of expansion. Uh, there were new banks springing up in the, uh, in the west and to the south. And while the great concentration of wealth was still in New York, in Wall Street, they could see that each year a little piece of it would slip away. And they decided that they better nip that process in the bud before it goes too far. And one of the best ways to do that is to impose regulations on the whole banking industry with the levers of control of those regulations in the hands of the large banks in New York so they could literally regulate their competition. Uh, so that was one of the purposes of the of the Federal Reserve System is to bring the whole banking industry uh, under the control of the large dominant banks. And, uh, okay, take a look at that. They talked about that, how important that was. Uh, and then look at the record since then. You have to give the Federal Reserve an A on its report card for that purpose. Uh, another one of the uh, objectives which they talked about, and this is perhaps the most important one as far as we're concerned, is that they wanted to put a stop uh, to the private financing of debt or, or, or what they call private capital expansion or private capital formation is the technical term for it. And what that really means is that uh, there was a trend in those days at the turn of the century for individuals and corporations to save their money and then use their own money for expansion. Uh, they would use their own money. Corporations would use their own funding for uh, R&D and building new buildings and, and all that kind of thing, taking on new inventories, uh, because the cost of borrowing money was uh, pretty high. So they found it was better uh, to their profit line to uh, hold back a little bit of money each quarter from the dividends that they normally would pay to their stockholders, put the, that money into a sinking fund, and then when it accumulated to a certain level, they would use their own money to expand their operations instead of going to the bank and borrowing money. Well, the banks looked at that trend with great alarm. They said, this, this is not the way we want it. We want them to come to us, borrow the money from us, so that we can make a profit on the loans. And that's logical. You would assume that they would want to do that. But the problem was that they uh, couldn't compete. Uh, they had to charge too much interest. Uh, on their loans, and therefore uh, it, their loans weren't that attractive. So their cry at that time was to create what they called a flexible currency. 
that is a code word, meaning um, they wanted a system of money that could be created out of nothing, that was no longer backed by gold or silver and therefore limited in its demand, uh, or rather limited in its supply, so they could literally create it out of nothing and do it legally. And that would allow them to expand the money supply at will, and that's what they meant by a flexible money supply. Well, the, the trick is not too hard to understand. You know, uh, if, if you might say, well, why, why didn't they just lower their interest rates? Uh, and the answer is that because in those days the money supply was backed by gold and silver, which means that you could not expand the money supply without expanding the uh, ounces of silver and gold in your warehouse. So you were limited. And uh, if you had a limited supply of money, naturally you had to charge a higher rate of interest on it to, uh, you know, it's a question of supply and demand. Uh, now, if you had a flexible money supply, that means you didn't have to have money based on gold or silver, and you could create large amounts of it. And, you see, the trick is not too hard. If, if you um, can create money out of nothing, you don't have to charge an awful lot of interest on it to show a profit. It's, it's, that, it's that simple. Yeah, it's a million percent profit there. <laughs> it, yeah, it's infinite interest. So um, they finally convinced the Congress and the American people that a flexible money supply was a good idea in the interest of the economy, supposedly. always These things are always sold on the basis of being uh, for the interest of the taxpayer and the voter and so forth. Anyway, so they, they got their flexible money supply, and now they could lower the interest rates because it was all profit anyway, most of it, uh, and still uh, come out pretty good. Well, now the interest rates went down uh, to below what it would be in an honest free market economy where everything was based by on gold or silver. And now corporations began to say, well, you know, this is silly to go to all of the self-discipline to save our money when we can borrow it so cheaply. So that did put an end, just about, in most cases, an end to private capital formation. So as today, uh, very few corporations work out of their own funds. They always go to the banks and borrow money for whatever they need. And uh, so now we look at that uh, element on the report card of the Federal Reserve System, and they get an A for it, total success. And the third thing that they were really concerned about is that they knew that this system was subject to all kinds of problems and that eventually there would be failures and there would be losses and they didn't want to pick up those losses themselves they wanted to pass it on to the taxpayers all in the name of being in the public interest and so they devised a scheme where they went into partnership with the federal government so that everything that they did was uh, regulated and controlled and approved by the federal government and that means that the federal government now was responsible for the success of the system. If you tell the system, you know, these are the rules and regulations, and of course those rules and regulations were written by the bankers themselves, <laughs> that was part of the thing that they didn't tell anybody. So uh, if you follow the rules and the regulations that the government uh, has put into law, and then if the banks get into trouble, whose fault is it? Well, it's the government's, isn't it? And so they designed a system, they wanted to design a system, they said, whereby the losses could be passed on to the taxpayers in the name of protecting the public. And you take a look at the history since the formation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, and you see all of the banks that have been in trouble over the years because of failed loans on the part of giant corporations or failed loans on the part of third world countries 
Who comes to the rescue? Uncle Sam comes to the rescue either by providing the money or guaranteeing the loans so that those interest payments can continue. And the losses were indeed passed on to the taxpayer. So when you look at the true objectives of the Federal Reserve System, uh, it's not a failure at all. Uh, so you come back to the original question. The myth of uh, the Federal Reserve being uh, conceived um, in the interest of the American public is, is exactly that. It is a myth, uh, but it's a convenient myth, and people like to believe it. And you say that it's really all about the bailout. If the, if the big banks who are the member banks of the Federal Reserve System, if they get into too much financial difficulty, they go to the Fed to get the money. And also it seems that at the same time, if the federal government uh, needs more money than it can get away with taxing us in any given year, then they walk down the street to the Fed and they get their bailout from the Federal Reserve as well. That's right, and the people on the inside of that system uh, like to describe the Federal Reserve as the uh, 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 the bank of last resort or the loan of last resort. Uh, that means when everything else fails and the free enterprise market is about to uh, <laughs> about to operate and get rid of uh, the weak sisters and those who have operated fraudulently just before that happens. Um, and then the Federal Reserve comes in and provides the money to bail them out and perpetuate the system. Well, so what's really so wrong about creating all this money? I mean, the idea that, you know, bankers are collecting interest on money that they create out of nothing, I mean, that, that has its own kind of moral problems. But if the government can just create money for free, then why does that matter to the regular people out here? Well, unfortunately, uh, nobody, uh, well, I should say very few people, think that it does matter. They think, oh, well, that's the way they do things, and uh, I don't care as long as, as, long as I, um, my refrigerator is well-stocked and, uh, and television programs are good. Um, but it does matter to everyone whether they realize it or not, because the process winds up stealing their wealth from them. I don't care how large or how little the income is for an individual. Everyone has a certain degree of wealth. And it's that wealth meaning is defined in this case as the amount of money we have to do the things that we want to do, not just bare survival. Everything above and beyond that level of bare survival, it can be classified as wealth. Some people have more of it than others, but it doesn't make any difference. We all have some of it. Uh, at least we, we used to have more of it than we do now. But nevertheless, the amount of wealth that we have to do the things that we want to do, to be independent, and to live our own lives, that is being eroded. No, that's the wrong word. It is being stolen from us. We don't even know it. It's being taxed away through the process of inflation. Now, inflation is a tax. And many people don't think of it as that. They just think that, well, our purchasing power has gone away. You know, we used to be able to buy a car for $500. And now, well, you know, $50,000, $30,000 for a car. We have to. Uh, what happened to those dollars? If we'd had a dollar that we put in, under the mattress uh, back in 1913, when the Federal Reserve System was created, and pulled it out now, uh, it wouldn't buy very much. You know, uh, a dollar in those days would have bought an awful lot, but today it, it barely uh, gets us on the subway. You know, so um, that's that's where it concerns or should concern people is that their wealth is being gradually and silently taken from them through this process of inflation. And inflation results uh, from creating money 
at an ever-increasing rate and flooding it into the economy at a rate which is greater than the expansion of goods and services. Now, if money were put into circulation at the same rate that the population increased and at the same rate that uh, productivity increased, then purchasing power would remain constant. Uh, but it doesn't. When money can be created out of nothing by people, you know what they do? They create money out of nothing. And the temptation to produce more and more and more of it is overpowering because to those who have that power, it's very beneficial to them. They're at the seat of power. They've got their hands on the lever of wealth, and they can determine uh, what the value of a dollar is, and they can predict uh, what's going to happen to the economy because they make it happen. So it's very heady wine to be in a position of power like that. And historically, whenever a government has had that power, they have always abused it because that's human nature. Once the money supply is separated from something of tangible value, like gold or silver, it could be anything, but that's what traditionally it always has evolved into by trial and error and choice. Once the money is separated from something of tangible value, which takes human effort to produce, then the brakes are off and the politicians and the bankers have free reign to create as much of it as they wish. All they have to do is just justify it in, in some kind of a way, say, well, this is necessary for the um, expansion of the economy, or this is necessary to fight a war on terrorism, or this is necessary to create full employment, or whatever they say. They just have to come up with a phrase or two to justify it, and they will expand the money supply at a rate faster than the expansion of goods and services, and that results in the value of those dollars becoming less and less and less with the passage of time. And we wind up with the loss of purchasing power, and we're being pushed down and down by it. Well, if we had a silver standard, for example, and goods and services and population were expanding, then uh, wouldn't the prices go up? Wouldn't we have the opposite problem of deflation? Well, um, I don't know that... go down is what I meant to say, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I don't know that that's a problem. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had saved uh, $100 and uh, we find out 10 years from now that $100 buys more than it did today as a result of increased productivity, increased technology, the ability to produce things cheaper than ever before? Uh, as it is today, um, that process is going on through improved technology, uh, but the only... Uh, only uh, sector of the economy where it really shows through is in high technology items. Uh, now, without inflation, the lowering of prices of computers, for example, would be even greater than it is today uh, because of the improved technology. But um, what's happening is that inflation is, is uh, pushing the prices up on everything, but productivity in technology uh, items is uh, so great that it's overcoming that and we feel a net lowering of prices in, in uh, technological-based uh, products. Uh, but without inflation, that would be even greater. And, of course, in everything else outside of the technological uh, uh, products, the price is going up as a result of inflation. So I think it would be a good thing. Um, and and inter interesting uh, enough, interestingly enough, the, when a monetary system is based on something of tangible value, uh, something that takes human effort to produce, it always maintains a, a balanced supply of that substance, uh, just the right amount 
to expand in proportion to other goods and services that are being produced because everything then has a common denominator and that is human effort. Uh, for example, supposing, um, uh, supposing it took one hour, this is absurd, but let's just use it because it's easy to remember. It took one hour to produce a pair of shoes and it took one hour to mine one ounce of silver. All right. uh, Obviously, this is not realistic, but it, the numbers are easy. Well, then a, it wouldn't make much difference whether you were a miner mining silver or a shoemaker uh, making shoes. It still took it would still take one hour of time to produce either one. So uh, it, you could do either one. But supposing that um, the supply of silver suddenly uh, became increased, they discovered a, a lot of silver somewhere, and uh, you could produce uh, an ounce of silver in just a half an hour now because it was so close to the surface and there was so much of it and, uh, and now you could produce an ounce of silver with 30 minutes work it still takes an hour to produce a pair of shoes so, well what would happen uh, if the shoes cost one ounce of silver uh, you, a lot of those shoemakers would uh, actually uh, the, <laughs> the price of silver would go down because there was so much of it but the price of shoes would stay up so what would happen uh, is that um, uh, I think I'm getting my analogy all mixed up here? But people would move, would move to the point where they could make the most money. All right. So I had it right the first time. The, the shoemaker would quit making shoes. He'd go over and start mining silver because uh, the silver was so easy to mine. He could he could get one one dollar's worth for one, half of an hour's work instead of an hour's work. So all of a sudden, the the silver supply would start to increase. And there would be more silver in circulation than shoes because some people quit making shoes and the silver was so uh, easy to produce. Well, if the silver supply increased and that was the money, uh, then what would happen is that the price of shoes would go up because the value of the silver would go down. The first thing you know, it would seek a new balance. And then there would no longer be an advantage to mining silver and some of those guys would go back to making shoes. Well... I, I don't think I explained that really well, but I think if you if you uh, realize that people will always move to an occupation where um, it, they get the most uh, bang for the buck, so to speak, they get the most money for their human effort. Uh, this is a supply and demand issue. Uh, when money is based on that kind of concept, the amount of precious metals behind a money system, whether it's gold or silver, will automatically expand or contract depending upon its relative supply to all of the other goods and services in the economy. And therefore, the price ratio will remain very constant. And the best evidence of that is to take a look at uh, uh, what it cost in ancient Rome to buy a nice toga, a uh, handcrafted belt, and a pair of sandals. In those days, it took approximately a one-ounce uh, silver, excuse me, one ounce gold coin. I think they call them real dads. And uh, you could buy a toga, handcrafted belt, and a pair of sandals for one ounce of, of gold. Well, today, thousands of years later, if you walked into a men's store with the equivalent cash value of one ounce of gold, you would be able to buy a nice suit, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of shoes. The real price for those products hasn't changed in thousands of years when based on something of tangible value such as gold. So that's what I'm talking about. 
is that when money is based on something that requires human effort to produce, the quantity of that money will always equally pace the quantity of goods and services elsewhere in, in the economy and the value or the purchasing power of that monetary unit will remain amazingly constant over a long period of time. Until we invite government into the mix, in which case they take the whole supply and demand free market theory and take it all off a track. Oh, well, they say uh, freedom is, is not good. They don't have any faith in freedom. It's something as important as money must be regulated. It must be regulated for the public good so that we can uh, get rid of these awful uh, impersonal forces of supply and demand. Surely we, in our infinite wisdom, will be able to figure out a better method, and we can use it for the betterment of society, and uh, we can just improve on it. And so that's the, that's the mentality of the typical um, bureaucrat, the typical politician, and certainly the typical banker, who does not want to have the money supply limited in any way. They want to have the ultimate decision power over that. All right. Now, if I could invite you to uh, step into my time machine and go back to the uh, foundation of the Republic, uh, I want to read here from page 329 of your book from the chapter, The Creature Comes to America. You have uh, two quotes here, one from Jefferson and one from Hamilton. Jefferson says, A private central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army. We must not let our rulers load us with perpetual debt. Hamilton said, quote, No society could succeed which did not unite the interest and credit of rich individuals with those of the state. A national debt, if it is not excessive, will be to us a national blessing. This is really the split dating all the way back to the very first generation of American, uh, well, not, you know what I mean, after the revolution and the, the creation of the republic. Uh, this was the split that created the two-party system, right? Fighting over the bank. That was a large part of it, you bet. And, of course, the, uh, the split still exists. The only difference is that the one group, the Hamiltonian group, has decisively won the battle. And they're in the saddle today and running the show. Well, if only I really did have a time machine. I could go back and have Aaron Burr shoot that bastard a couple decades before he did. <laughs> it's really all Hamilton's fault. I mean, that, that statement, in fact, it's funny because I don't think anyone would dare say something like that openly today that, well, we must intertwine the interests of the people who are already rich with the interests of the state. I mean, what? That's, is this guy a Nazi or what? Well, they wouldn't say it openly. Uh, they'd know that that would be uh, bad PR, uh, but they think it. Uh, you can be certain that the Rockefellers and uh, the Bushes and uh, the Clintons and, uh, and others um, think that. And uh, they know it. They, they know that that's uh, where their political futures and their economic futures are. And, uh, but they're too smart to say it uh, quite as bluntly as that. Now, you see, when Hamilton was writing, um, not everybody was uh, literate. And uh, about the only people who were reading what Hamilton was writing were those who were either part of the upper class and the wealthy class or very close to it. 
so it wasn't considered to be um, offensive. It was just, they thought, well, this is just reality. Let's face it. We are the ones with the education. We're the ones with the culture. We're the ones with the wisdom. And, you know, someone has to run society, and it's, it's, uh, it's our, our responsibility. It's a burden, but it, we must assume our responsibility. Well, it's that noblesse, noblesse um, mentality uh, that was imported from Europe. And it was a real, it was probably a real uh, uh, reality in those days, um, and, and probably even is today to some extent. Uh, but we have been conditioned to think that uh, an ideal system that um, the average bloke, uh, regardless of his level of education, uh, regardless of his uh, uh, ethics, uh, regardless of his culture, uh, he's entitled to just as much voice in the future of the nation as everyone else. And uh, so um, that's not the way it works, by the way, but that's the myth, and uh, that's what uh, people, th they think it works that way. But those who are really in the top echelons of our government and our media and our institutions, they know it doesn't work that way, but they certainly wouldn't be foolish enough to go out and, uh, and advocate it uh, the status quo in quite that want to turn as uh, Hamilton did. Oh man, I have so many questions on the tip of my tongue. I'm not sure which one to ask you. I guess I want to, as long as we're we're still in the uh, early 19th century here, um, ask you about: Has there ever even really been a time in America since the Constitution was ratified that we actually had a free market? Was there always? this sort of uh, national-level intervention in the marketplace on behalf of the rich? No, I think, uh, I think for the uh, whole first uh, century of our, uh, of our uh, national evolution, we had a very strong free market. But no, the question was, was it 100% free? No, I don't think it's ever been 100% free. Uh, but it's been, it was very close to it in the beginning, especially with the thinking of, of people like uh, Jefferson, and uh, Washington and others who were, you know, definitely not the uh, uh, not the centrists at all. Uh, we, we had a lot of, of, of uh, freedom, and the free market definitely was. I think that's what made uh, America move uh, ahead of the world in such a short uh, time. It was a, a great burst of human energy that was released uh, by not having government regulations and controls on everybody's transactions and not having government intervening in our private lives, each man free to uh, to do what best he could for himself and his family, and uh, all of that. The the free market, the competitive spirit, just pushed America so far ahead. It was like a rocket ship. Uh, the, the, we were so far ahead of the rest of the world in, in consumer uh, goods, anyway, in standard of living. Now, some people would say that, you know, that's not the end of it, and I agree with that. But at least we became the envy of the world, and millions of people wanted to get out of the old system and get over here so they could participate in it without realizing what it was that was creating all that. They came over here, and then they wanted to bring the ways of the old world over here, um, not realizing that they were going to destroy the goose that was laying the golden egg. But anyway, um, yeah, I think the free market did exist in the United States, uh, and it was up until about the turn of the century that that uh, was true. And then finally, uh, at the turn of the century, we had the giant uh, industrialists like J.P. Morgan, uh, well, he was more of a banker, uh, but uh, John D. Rockefeller and those, um, 
the oil uh, magnets and the railroad magnets and uh, all of those great uh, big industrial empires began to uh, reach the top, the pinnacle of their uh, of their particular industry, and they they had pretty well beaten out their competition. And now they didn't want competition anymore. The free enterprise uh, competitive system was okay while they were scrambling to the top. But now that they were at the top, they changed their mind. They said competition is no longer what they wanted. And John D. Rockefeller was quoted in all of his biographies as saying, competition is a sin. And so from that point forward in American history, there was a great drive that continues today to eliminate competition and to bring it all under regulatory control of the government. And, of course, hidden behind that move is the fact that the great industrial and commercial and banking empires are actually determining what those governmental rules and regulations are going to be. So it looks as though the government is regulating industry, but in reality, because of the tremendous influence that industry has over the government, industry itself is determining its own rules and regulations. And uh, so what happens is that they're forming giant cartels right under our noses, and they're taking the cartel agreement and passing it into law, selling it to the American people as though this is somehow uh, a measure to protect the interests of the voters against those big, bad, giant corporations. But in reality, they're the rules and regulations that the corporations themselves have drafted up to regulate their own industry and to prevent competition so that those at the uh, head of those industries can remain there without having to uh, worry about newcomers on the block. That's the reality of today. And that was all starting in about 1900. And uh, certainly that's what happened with the banking industry. We're back now to the Federal Reserve System, which when you look at it, you realize it's, it's not a government agency at all. It's not really a private corporation. It's, it's a hybrid between the two. What it really is is a cartel. The Federal Reserve System is a banking cartel. It's not any different in purpose than the, the uh, banana cartel or the oil cartel or the sugar cartel. This just happens to be a banking cartel, and it's dominated by the large players in the banking industry. They've written their own rules and regulations, uh, and it's primarily to keep the competition under control, and uh, they have brought the government into it as a partner to uh, take the cartel agreement and give it the status of law so that now... Yeah, the cartel doesn't even have to enforce their own agreement. They can rely on government to use the police power of the state to regulate and enforce the cartel agreements. In your book, you quote, I think, uh, Thomas W. Lamont from the Morgan Bank in a speech that he gave to, uh, I forget which union, the IWW or something, where the banker is telling the union rank and file, hey, don't you guys understand that we see eye to eye on this? Controlled economy, hey, that's what we want. Why are we fighting? And I just think that's interesting that, you know, the left wing in America always sees big business as the enemy, but uh, really, big business and the the left, especially the revolutionary socialist left, um, they have quite a bit in common. And, and whether the left realizes that or not, the bankers seem to. Well, yeah, the bankers are not uh, fooled by this at all. And um, I would say that... Uh, a lot of the people that you say on the left, that's a term, excuse me, that's a term I don't like because it doesn't really describe it, but uh, most people have a general idea. 
that that means a, a group of people who are calling for government control and regulation, supposedly in the name of protecting the public. Um, if, if that's the group we're talking about, then there's very little difference between them and the giant corporations. You're absolutely right. Let's talk about the uh, welfare and the warfare state as it's evolved since 1913. Um, if my recollection serves me correct, the Federal Reserve Act and the income tax were passed in 1913, and they had us in a war in Europe within four years. Is there a connection here? Well, I think there is indirectly. Uh, the first clue is that the Federal Reserve Act and the Income Tax uh, Act were both uh, sponsored by and promoted by the same group, uh, the same political groupings uh, in Washington, and that they were primarily the big banking interests, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan and the Rockefellers and all the rest. Um, that is not a coincidence. Uh, we don't know, I don't know, what their long-range view was, uh, but you can you can uh, make some pretty good guesses. Uh, why would uh, why would the large financial interests of the nation be promoting an income tax? Is it because they thought that it would tax away their own wealth? Obviously not. They must have had something else in mind. And what could it have been? Well, we don't know. But let's take a look at what it turned out to be. And that is that the income tax has been a system uh, for preserving the wealth of the uh, of the great. Uh, uh, wealth holders through uh, the tax-exempt foundations, uh, which, by the way, was also sponsored by this same group at the same time. It was a means for the, those with great wealth to get their wealth away from the hands of the IRS by transferring it to tax-exempt foundations, which they indirectly could control. So the ownership of wealth is not as important as the control of wealth. It's something that the average person needs to understand that if, if you own a car and have to maintain it and uh, pay the license fee on it and suffer the depreciation on it and uh, worry about it uh, being stolen from you, uh, that's one thing. But if you don't own the car, you have somebody else own it, but you have unlimited right to drive it without any of those other responsibilities, which is the better position to be in? Uh, obviously, it, it's, you're better off not owning anything as long as you have unlimited access to it and you can control its use. So the very wealthy people learned that, and they they saw that right at the beginning, that just having technical ownership of a lot of wealth was not as important as controlling the wealth and being able to benefit from it. And so they transferred much of their wealth to the tax-exempt foundations, which was placed into the hands of boards of directors of people who were beholden to those of the wealth, and they would be dependent to do exactly what the original donors wanted them to do with that wealth. And so they could continue to benefit from it, and they could pass that wealth on from one generation to the next without having to worry about inheritance taxes and so forth uh, by putting them into uh, various... Uh, tax avoidance trusts and so forth. So they had this, the thing figured out from the very beginning that the very wealthy who were sponsoring the income tax would not be burdened by it, but it would be another group. Well, who's that? Well, it wouldn't be the, the poor uh, working class because he didn't make a lot of money anyway. Those fellows down there, they were struggling to hang on. It was the middle class. And that's how it turned out that the income tax has been the greatest burden to the middle class 
and it's gradually uh, shrinking the middle class and squeezing it out of existence. The few who can survive it get pushed up into the upper class of great wealth, and, but most of them are getting squeezed down into the other side, which is where they, they don't have enough hardly to get along on. I, I can't help but believe that the intelligent people who drafted the Federal Reserve uh, and the Income Tax uh, Act and the tax-exempt foundations all at the same time, I find it hard to believe that they didn't uh, foresee this. But uh, whether or not they did, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not positive. Well, and it was some of the same personalities surrounding them that got us into World War One, right? Oh yes, oh yes, they, they got us into World War One, and that's an interesting story in itself. Uh, J.P. Morgan um, was the principal financier of the war bonds for England and France in the war uh, against the Kaiser. And um, war bonds are always, you know, very lucrative. They produce nice interest rates, uh, and they're wonderful investments provided the uh, country issuing the bonds uh, wins the war. If, uh, if, the, if France and England had lost the war against Germany, those bonds would have been worthless. So at that particular point in history, it looked like they were going to lose the war. Without U.S. intervention, there was very little doubt that Germany had the upper hand and um, England in particular was going to have to sue for peace. And the chances of getting those loans repaid to J.P. Morgan and company were uh, approaching zero. So uh, Morgan and his uh, political allies went to work very intensely in this country to, uh, to raise the consciousness of the American people for the necessity of getting into this war in Europe to save the world for democracy. Um, or to save democracy for the world, whatever. Uh, and it was, a, it was offered to the American people as a great humanitarian crusade. And uh, that's even... The war to end all wars. The war to end all wars, yes. Make the world safe for democracy. They had all kinds of slogans. And, um, but the American people weren't buying it. And it looked really dim for J.P. Morgan and company and his investors. It really looked bad. Um, and at one point, they estimated that they only had maybe a month or two left of food before they, England would run out of food. And so it was really a bad situation. Well, that's when the sinking of the Lusitania came along just in time uh, to, to uh, raise the ire of the American people into thinking, oh, these, these Germans, they sank this, uh, this passenger ship with Americans on board. Uh, you know, how can we let a nation like that exist? We must go to war against them. What the people didn't know is that the ship was, was allowed to be sunk, and I say that without reservation. Um, the German embassy, first of all, knew that the ship was loaded with ammunition being shipped over to England. That was in direct violation of uh, American neutrality laws. We were doing that all the time, supplying um, Germany's uh, uh, enemies, uh, with uh, munitions and uh, war materials of all kinds, and we, that was in violation of our own and uh, our own neutrality laws. The Germans knew that, and they also knew that the ship was uh, going to go into uh, dangerous territory. And the day before it sailed, the German embassy uh, tried to place an ad in uh, oh I forgot, I think it was twenty or, or twenty-five newspapers in the United States warning American passengers, do not board the Lusitania. It's going into a war zone, and it, you're in danger. Please do not get on board this ship. 
the U.S. State Department got wind of this and intervened and contacted every one of those newspapers and threatened them with dire consequences if they published that advertisement. And, of course, all of the newspapers pulled the ad except one, which was in uh, Iowa, the Des Moines Register. That's the only reason we know about it today, is we have a, a copy of the actual ad as it appeared in, in Des Moines. Well, that's a long way from New York. Uh, all of the New York papers and all the East Coast uh, newspapers uh, were afraid by threats from the State Department. So the American passengers on board that ship had no warning. They had no idea that they were in serious trouble. Well, they got on board the ship, and of course it sailed over to Europe, and uh, uh, when it got into an area where it was known that German submarines had been operating, the captain was ordered to shut down one of the boilers. Yet They had four boilers on the ship. It was a very fast ship. Uh, and with all four boilers going and all uh, four propellers, uh, that ship could outmaneuver and outrun a, a submarine. It was very fast and uh, hard to hit a fast-moving target. But with um, one boiler shut down, it was running at 75% speed. Now it was an easier target. That was one thing. At the last minute, uh, the um, British Admiralty called away uh, the British destroyer, the Juno, which was assigned to escort it through this dangerous area. They called the destroyer away so that here is the ship going at three-quarters speed into an area where they had just uh, sunk a couple of British ships the, the day before, so they knew there were submarines in the area. And it was, in other words, it was a sitting duck. And everybody was... Uh, I shouldn't say everybody, but the people in Washington who wanted to get America into the war, and the people in England, of course, who wanted America to come into the war for their own reasons, to support them, they were just hoping that the Lusitania would get hit by a German torpedo. And, in fact, it did. And then everybody pretended outrage and uh, surprise. Oh, isn't this a terrible thing? And, you know, you can go on and on with these things, and... This, this is not speculation. This is so well documented now uh, by uh, the people who participated in the event that it's not even controversial to mention it. And, of course, the parallels to the, to the war on terrorism are, are uh, frightening. I was going to say, this uh, story really could be repeated all through the 20th century and perhaps into this one. Is that well, the correct true. assessment, you think? Pearl Harbor, the uh, Gulf of Tonkin inviting Iraq to invade Kuwait. We're not interested in your border dispute. Right. Um, yeah, we have to face the fact that the people who are running this show have other interests and other agendas uh, that are not necessarily the interests and agendas of the American people. Uh, the leadership is concerned with building an international structure, a, a government, uh, a new world order, as they like to call it, based on the model of collectivism. And they believe that the best way to condition uh, the American people in particular to accept such a great paradigm shift in, the, in their uh, uh, mores, in their culture, in their political system, uh, to agree to merge into a world government where they would have to uh, lower their standards to, to reach a common denominator of the rest of the world, uh, to give up all of those cherished uh, liberties that we've gotten used to. They have to have a motive for doing that. And they believe that the best motive 
for convincing the American people to give up their freedoms is to get them involved in war. And they've written about this. They've talked about this. This is not my speculation. These are their appraisals. War, they say, is the best way to move America forward, in their view, forward toward a new world order based on the model of collectivism. So it's not surprising. Once you understand what their goal is, it's not our goal, not the average American's goal, but once you understand that it's their goal, people like like Bush and Clinton and Kerry, you know, they're all, uh, they're all part of the same club. Um, most of our presidents for many decades now have been members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And this is their goal, is to bring about the new world order based on the model of collectivism. Once we understand that, then all of a sudden, uh, a lot of these things which seemingly were hard to explain make a lot of sense. They're doing this because they believe it's in the best interest of mankind. They actually see themselves as not scoundrels, but as great statesmen who are uh, guiding the American people, uh, having to use um, teaching events such as um, 9-11, teaching events such as um, attack on Pearl Harbor, teaching events such as the sinking of the Lusitania, to uh, raise the consciousness and the awareness of the American people to realize that they must act and, you know, take uh, drastic steps and, uh, and be willing to give up uh, their old ideas of the way uh, life should be. And this is all, in their view, they're doing a great service to us. Uh, so be it. Let them believe what they must, but I think it's our responsibility to be firm on what we believe and to call the shots and say, hey, you're not going to get away with that anymore. Uh, you're not our leaders. You're somebody else's leaders, maybe, but not ours. So get out of office and let's replace you with somebody that represents the true feelings and, and the goals and aspirations of the American people. How do we do that? How Good do we question. kick these people out and replace them? Well, you don't just go in there and kick them out, do you? You've got to, you've got to um, get control of the processes by which they get in there in the first place. And it's obvious that the first um, gateway into political office is through the two major political parties. And that's where the real problem lies in that both political parties are today firmly in the hands of people who have no disagreement about the ultimate goal of the new world order uh, or the model of collectivism on which that's to be based. They're in total agreement on that. They may disagree over tactics and style. They may disagree uh, over personalities. They may uh, fight with each other as to who will be the top dog, uh, who will uh, be the president, uh, and so forth. But when it comes to long-range strategies and ultimate goals, they are in total agreement on both sides of the political spectrum so-called political spectrum. It's not. It's a game. It's a charade. Uh, the first thing we must do to replace uh, our leaders is to, is to break the grip that these collectivists have over our two-party system. How do you do that? Easier said than done. That's the reason I have created Freedom Force International, because I believe the only way you can, you can do that is to recapture control of all of the power centers of society. Uh, those groups and organizations to which people belong, 
the ones that have political influence, such as labor unions and political parties and um, church organizations and, and teachers associations and professional groups of all kinds, uh, these are the uh, the power centers, as they call them, the power centers of society that actually, when you add them all up, they determine the political and social life of the country. And we have lost control of all of those, the leaderships of those uh, organizations over the past five or six decades, uh, because we have not assumed our responsibility to be active. Uh, we've allowed collectivists who have the plan, this new world order plan that I'm talking about, we've allowed them to uh, capture control of these organizations simply because we weren't interested in organizational work. Many of us who uh, don't like what's going on in the world, we consider ourselves to be individualists. Uh, we don't like organizational work. We don't want to get involved with all of that politicking and all that gossiping and backstabbing. We sometimes look at it that way. Uh, politics, oh man, I hate politics, you hear people say. I don't want anything to do with that. I hate politicians. And so they back away and they leave the control of these power centers completely open to uh, to the collectivists who gravitate into it by instinct. So what I'm suggesting is that, and what the purpose of Freedom Force is, is to show people how to move into these organizations and become influential in them, and eventually, hopefully, to be dominant in the control of these organizations. And, and through that process, it's going to take a little while. You just... It's not as easy as this going to the polls and voting for the candidate of your choice because you don't have a candidate of your choice, I'm, I'm sorry to say. You've got to get control of the mechanisms that select the candidates, and that's going to take some time. But at least it can be done, and that's the purpose of Freedom Force International is to show people how to do that. That's funny. It kind of reminds me of H.G. Uh, Wells' book, The Open Conspiracy, Blueprint for a New World Order, and that's... Basically, Freedom Force is the open conspiracy to uh, stop the New World Order. That's exactly, that's a wonderful analogy, Scott. I hadn't thought about that. But that is exactly what uh, Wells was uh, trying to advocate in his book, The Open Conspiracy, is just to create a, a, a kind of, uh, well, I think he might have called it an intelligentsia, but that happened to be the word of the century. Uh, a group of people who knew what they were doing and who were dedicated and who would, uh, who would move into all strata of society and uh, through their combined efforts shift the direction of society. And that's what they did. And so is your position that reading and writing and talking endlessly about this is not going to get it done? It, we have to move into the positions of power and take them. That's why I thought, you know, originally freedom force, well... I don't know, that kind of sounds like a contradiction. Force, coercion, that's the opposite of liberty, but I'm beginning to understand that what you really mean is to use force to protect freedom. That We're at that point now. We have no other options. Well, actually, the real, world, uh, the real word is power. And, of course, power has all kinds of definitions to it. But the kind of power I'm talking about is influence over the organizations that make up the uh, political... Uh, opinion of the nation, the political direction of the nation. Somebody will hold that power. Uh, if it's there, someone will hold it. And it's either us or it's the collectivists. Right now, the collectivists have almost a monopoly control over all of those power centers. And we either uh, say, isn't that too bad? My goodness, isn't this terrible? And, and uh, uh, circulate petitions 
and ask our leaders to be nice. You know, either we take that stance and just complain about it, or we say, okay, it's time to get busy. Uh, I'm going in there, and I'm going to get these people out of those positions of power. And that means, of course, that I myself and you and everybody else who wants to take on this mission has to be uh, ready to assume the responsibilities of power. Power does have uh, responsibilities, and it, it has some dangers. Uh, we have to accept those, and we have to deal with them intelligently and ethically. And there are ways to do that, and that, too, is a major for uh, focus of uh, Freedom Force International. All right, everybody, you heard it. G. Edward Griffin. The book is The Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, I encourage everyone, if you want to hear any more uh, from Griffin, my archives are at philipdrew.com. That's Philip with one L and D-R-U. And uh, there are two previous interviews with Mr. Griffin on that page. This one will be up uh, within a couple of days. And his websites are freedom-force.org and realityzone.com. Uh, do you have any uh, closing comments, final words, Mr. Griffin? Uh, no, I really don't, Scott, except to say uh, congratulations to you on the great work you're doing. And uh, I want to encourage your listeners uh, not to be discouraged by the seeming impossibility of the task we've undertaken. Uh, if we don't need 51% of the people to turn this around. Our enemies have captured control with 1% of the population or less. We can dethrone them with half of that. So that's the thought I would like to leave with you. Thank you very much for coming back on the show, Mr. Griffin. Thank you. Mm -hmm.